Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies. Today I've got Matt Drufke on the show. Matt is from the suburbs of Chicago, Aurora, Illinois, to be exact. And he's been doing comedy for over 16 years. And for over seven years, he's been running Still Not Friday, which is a Thursday night showcase that takes place in Aurora. And he attracts some of the best comedians in the business to his show because he runs a good show and is respectful of the talent. Matt and I have been Facebook friends for a while, and I read his columns in the Fancy Boys Club, and that is in the show notes here if you want to check it out. He wrote a few columns about how not to put on a show and how not to act when you're a comedian on a show, and I learned a lot from that. We talked a lot about that and some of the uh, good things he's done and some of the mistakes he's made along the way in putting shows together, and it's a really, really good talk about somebody who's very passionate about the art of comedy, and it really shows in this interview as well as how other comedians feel about him. You can tell that he is well-respected, throughout the country because of the way he runs his show and his respect for the craft. Check this one out. It's a good one. I'm coming to you today as a brand ambassador for Freedom Grooming. If you've seen me lately, you know I'm bald, and I like to keep my head looking good. I'm trying to stay away from that 5 o'clock shadow at 10 a.m., and I tell you, I've been through probably six or seven different types of razors, including all the electric clippers that are supposed to get such a close shave, manual razors with two, three, four blades, and nothing is as easy to use and is as good on my head as the Freedom Grooming. Razor. I tell you what, I can use it in the shower because it's completely waterproof. I can shave dry. I can use their pre-shave oil and their shave cream to get an even better shave. It's just the easiest thing in the world to use, and I never get nicks or bumps. There's no blood like there is with a razor. It's just a fantastic shaver, and I use it every day. So if you want to get in on this, if you're bald and you want to look good, Check out freedomgrooming.com forward slash ambassador and use the word behind the bits podcast when you check out and get 10% off your first order. That's freedomgrooming.com forward slash ambassador and the word behind the bits podcast when you check out. It's all one word. And check out my reel on Instagram where I shave my head completely dry in the car and it looks fantastic. That's freedomgrooming.com forward slash ambassador and use the word behind the bits podcast, all one word, and get 10% off. It's a fantastic shaver. It's Matt Drufke. How are you doing, Drat? Hey, <laughs> Drat. I'm doing really Matt. well. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, uh, it's funny. I see you as you are now with the beard and you've got, uh, you've got a son that is graduating this year or has graduated. I have, I have two sons. I have a son. Yeah. He graduated high school. Uh-huh. He's 18. Then my youngest will be two next month. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Later this month. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I had to keep them far enough away so I can screw one up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just screw one up a time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I dig that. My, no, mine are... So, how old are your? How old are yours? Yeah, mine are three years apart. I've got a daughter that is thirty-one, and my son is going to turn twenty-nine this year. So yeah, oh, wow. they're old. I guess that makes me old. That's- but I was, it's funny, I always do a deep dive into everybody I bring in and I'm typing in Matt Drufke and I see a lot of your early headshots and your early performance shots and you just had yeah. this baby face. You look 12 years old up there and yeah, I, I, uh, I looked real tired, yeah. but clean shaven yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, 45 pounds heavier. Yeah. <laughs> a little more meat on them bones yeah. back when I started. But one of the things I want to get into, one of the reasons that I approached you uh, the first time, it was the essays, it was a series of essays you did over a number of years on how not to get booked on a comedy show. But I wanted to back up because in those essays, you talk about a lot of mistakes that you made along the way too, leading up to doing this successful Thursday show. And I wanted to talk about, yeah, go ahead. Oh, so I've been doing, I, I was going to say, so I've been doing stand up for about 16 years and I started producing for like almost 12 years now. And that started by accident. Uh-huh. There was a guy who had me at a show and he was just like, do you want to run this show? Cause I don't want to anymore. And it was close to my house. And I thought, Oh, that's a great idea. So I was making just as many mistakes as a new producer. Yeah. As people were as new comedians. And so when I sat down to write those articles and look, the articles I wrote, most of the people are bad guys doing horrible things. Yeah. So I had no problem dragging them. Though I though I used no real names, though everyone in the scene like messaged me like, who are you talking about? And I was like, oh, I will happily tell you. But I wanted to make it fair that there was blame to go around. I recommend every comedian produce at least one show, but also understand that that's a growing experience in its own. It's a whole different area that I think anyone should see just to respect the effort and thanklessness that kind of goes behind it. And I think no matter who you are or how long you've been doing comedy, the first shows that you produce are going to be shitty because producing yeah. is way different than stand up. Yeah. And just, you just don't know. I feel like it's a lot like stand up. I feel like how when you start stand up and you're doing it long enough, you find those people in the audience who's, oh, people say, I'm funny. I bet I'd be good at stand-up. You look at those people and, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And then once you've been producing shows for four or five years, you see a group of stand-ups who like, oh, these shows suck. I bet I could run a good show. And it's, oh, no, you still don't know yeah. what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Because all it takes, much like in stand-up and producing, just one bad element can throw off an entire show. Yeah. Much like in stand-up, if you're doing some, if I'm watching a stand-up comedian in the multitude of clips I get, and the first thing I see is them take out the take the microphone out of the stand and then step backwards so the stand is just in front of them, uh-huh. there's part of me that's like, I don't even care what you're saying anymore. 
I just want to know why you didn't have the forethought to move the stand. Yeah. And it's just because they just don't know me better. It's not because they're, they could be very funny and they could be a very nice person. Yeah. It's like that one little act changes everything. Yeah. And I I remember vividly doing that and somebody telling me, hey, move the stand. And it was, you just don't know until. Yeah. You are not the backup singer for the mic stand. Yeah. And and when you are filming that to send to a producer, the camera, because most people just use their phone, auto focuses on the stand. Yeah. So all you get is a beautifully focused mic stand. Yeah. And a kind of blurry comedian in the back. Uh-huh. <laughs> so let's talk about first let's talk about your getting into stand-up because you've been a long time in it and you even in your essays you talk about some of the bumps along the road that you had there so let's talk about why you got into it and what your progression as far as stand-up has been so i started when i was 26 which for a lot of stand-ups and specifically in the chicagoland area is a very old age yeah Chicago does a really good job of cranking up these 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds who are like too smart for their own good and way too funny, and it's very irritating. Yeah. But I didn't start in Chicago proper. I started in the Northwest suburbs, where when you're 26, you're the youngest guy on the bill. And at that point, which was like the mid-2000s, the scene was so dramatically different. At Mm. that time, Chicago, the city of Chicago had one proper club and now they have three and the suburbs had three clubs one of which had a micro one of which had an open mic so like finding opportunities was so hard unless you were traveling into chicago but from that you saw this big kind of underground move chicago is and i feel like especially in the era when i started like the mid 2000s chicago is better known for the people who weren't getting famous in clubs like kyle Kinane and matt bronger and camille Nagiani, pete holmes and those guys just learn like all right if the one club doesn't have time for all of us we better find these great bars or pancake restaurants or bowling alleys that want to have comedy and just do the things we want to do and that's why when people talk about the great independent shows And you look like you'll always hear people talk about like the Lincoln Lodge in Chicago or Chicago Underground Comedy or Comedians You Should Know, which like branched out to L.A. and New York. Like these things from people in Chicago who just were like, oh, we have to make our we have to make our own opportunities for ourselves. And that's how we'll get talented. And that's why I think that's why a lot of people in this area started thinking, oh, I could produce. It's a good it's a good way to get recognized. So as I started going to Chicago a lot more. It's a good way to get better and better because you are the first open mic I would regularly go to was at Sunday night at a bar called Chubas where I would show up at nine. At that time I was 26 father of a two year old and I'd be like 15th on the list. So I'm like, great, I'm going to get out of there early. But then three comics in, Oh, Hannibal Burris came in. He needs to do a side. And then three comics later, Oh, Cameron Esposito came in. She's going to do her set. And so then it gets to the point where it's like 1am and what became 13th is now like 45th. Yeah. But you were still, for me, as like a comedy nerd and a comedy fan, I was just still so excited to be in the room. Yeah. That it was this amazing learning opportunity. So it was, it was a really wonderful time to get started in Chicago. 
And then just from there, you just kept working harder and harder. You talked about seeing old pictures on YouTube, so many old clips that people will not take down yeah. of stuff that I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't love some of the things I say in that or yeah. how I present myself. But it, I would hope that anyone who sees that un, like looks at the date and says, oh, that's far away, far enough away that we yeah. can watch recent clips and give this guy the time of day. And at, there became a point in 2011, I got separated and I wanted to spend a lot more time with my son. And I really focused on building up like the Chicago suburbs scene because there were all these great comedians who were just looking for spots. And instead of telling people like, hey, all right, you have to drive an hour to Chicago and then drive an hour back. I said, let's just make spots here. Now the suburbs have become a spot with a lot of great shows and a lot of great open mics and some really interesting and fun clubs that right. just needed, I think needed to be shown like, hey, people around here want to laugh just the same as anywhere else. You yeah. just have to find a way to reach out to them. Just yeah. to make people aware and put on a good product and you're going to do okay. And really the difficulty, I think, in producing, because I, I did a few when I was in South Bend, is the, first of all, a lot of the places that you produce your first show in, your first shows in are not really geared for comedy. And you mentioned, exactly. you mentioned one, I think it was a rock bar and the stage was five, five feet up and yeah. the tables weren't close. That's exactly what I dealt with. Cause I had a buddy that had a rock bar. It was a great bar and stupid me. I think I did six shows there and I didn't figure out until the last show that their lighting was so good that I could just put people on the dance floor and I had to do this because I had a guy that was wheelchair bound as one of one of the comics. And I was like, oh, this is smart. And yeah. <laughs> and uh, so everybody's at the same level. You're closer to the audience. The e Everything was funnier that night. And that was the last one I did because it was January of 2019. And that was when the pandemic hit. And then I... After that, I'm like, yeah, I know what to do now. And all the previous five shows were just stupid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I remember that rock club you're talking about. I was there nine months. Yeah. And the very, the my pitch meeting, I remember I was there. They had some sort of metal shows. Uh -huh. and I was talking to the owners. And tell me, like, what kind of crowd you're looking for. And at the time in this metal show, two gentlemen picked up a third gentleman and threw him straight into a golden tee arcade game. <laughs> and I just pointed that I'm like, that doesn't happen at a comedy show. But mm -hmm. yeah, the stage was five feet in the air. I had to just start like pushing tables forward. I learned right away. The one thing I learned from there is that a venue will give you so much, but the best thing you can give a venue is just say, look, just give me tables and chairs and I'll put them where they need to go. And I'll see to the point where like now at the sh show we do, it's called Still Not Friday. It's in Aurora, Illinois. We've been there seven years. Obviously the pandemic took out a weird like 18 month chunk, mm -hmm. but uh, from start to go, the place we work at, which is called Two Brothers Roundhouse, which had been doing comedy when I first got started, we come into the room, we set up tables and chairs, we seat audience members, like, we, run our own lights and sound. We handle everything from soup to nuts, which the venue loves because they don't have to do any of that nonsense. And we love because we're succeeding on our term. Producing much like stand-up is just, if you're not 
when anyone wants to start producing a show, the only best advice I can say is make the show you want to make. Don't mm -hmm. try and make the venue happy. Obviously you should, or like whatever audience, make the show that you personally would pay money to see. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't do that and things go wrong, and they probably will your first time out, yeah. then you're going to be miserable. But at least if like you're watching the comics you want to watch, you have the room set up the way you want it to be set up. You're at least going to take pride in, I know this, and here are the three things I need to learn. Like, I need to put a curtain behind the comic so there's not a forever backstage. Yeah. Or I need to move speakers around so I don't get feedback. Or just a, a whole bunch of real small things that you can just pick up right. every time. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, being self-aware and knowing what went right and what went wrong is... I've been in a lot. So what you've done as, is just like all over the country now. So every suburb and small towns and everybody's doing something like this. And I see a lot of them that learn from their mistakes and move forward. And a lot of them just keep doing the same shit every time. <laughs> yeah, and, that's also frustrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And again, like in that way, producing is very much like stand up. And well, there are times when you see a stand-up and after three years, you're like, oh, that's not how you treat an audience? Or, oh, you're still opening with that joke? Why are you doing that? Yeah. And it's the same way when you're producing. You're like, like when you go into a room of someone who's produced other shows, and my dog is very adamant about this. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's very, he cares very much yeah. about show production. I can tell like, he talked a lot. <laughs> When you go into a room and you're like, oh, they've just got us next to the bar again. And you're like, mm -hmm. how is this person not learn? Like the one, the other thing I tell people is you're a good producer when you turn down more rooms than you accept. Yeah. Because yes, maybe you can get a room and you'll do three or four shows and you'll be able to pocket a little money or give some stage time or whatever. But if you're giving like the wrong, awful stage time to comedians who are going to hate it or resent it or comedians who don't know any better. And because of that, they're probably not that good. And then the audience turns on them, but it doesn't benefit. It certainly doesn't benefit the community. Yeah. It doesn't benefit you as a producer. It sure as hell doesn't benefit those comedians. So like you have to figure out like, how do I get back? And again, in a way that producing and standup goes very well, it's like, you have to find a person you trust. One of my favorite comedians is the Chicago comic Marty DeRosa. Marty has an amazing record out. He's part of Comedians You Should Know. I love Marty as a friend and a comic. And I will book Marty on the first show I do of any show. The new venue, Marty's in. Because Marty can look at a room and say, these are the five things you might want to think about. And I trust his opinion enough that I'm not, I'm not going to be dismissive of it I know he's coming from a good place. He knows we are friends enough where I can hear him and not get that that feeling people get where it's, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Like, we're friends and we're peers and we respect each other enough where when he says, hey, as a performer, I didn't love this. I can say, oh, well, we can fix that. Or we can't fix that. We Then it either has to be something that, okay, we have to put up with it or we just break ties with the venue and that's okay too. Yeah, and 
that's one of the, it's funny, I go back to my Todd Glass episode and we ended up talking about setting up a room no matter what the issues are for most of the most of our talk because when he goes in and he doesn't always know what he's getting into and sometimes the stage is right by the kitchen and you can hear the pots and pans clanging and stuff like that and he'll do he'll just take over and do all kinds of stuff to make it a better room and it's having you have to have been through it a few times to know what a better room looks like and yeah what the setup is and like you said the sound putting the mic in the right place making sure everybody's centered but and some rooms you just can't do it it's just not possible you get a long shotgun yeah. shack and type bars it just can't happen yeah and like that becomes that producer's kind of gambit where you're thinking like, okay, I'll try it. Or you just know ahead of time, look, this isn't going to work and it's not worth my hassle. And look, there have been enough shows that I have failed aggressively. <laughs> in the Chicago suburbs, I was one of the first people really like putting out shows in cities that have never tried comedy. The, the aforementioned Marty would call it the, the Aki Belt. Where as I drive by towns now, like if I'm going to visit my mom or something, I'll be like, oh, I have a failed showcase there. I have a failed showcase there. I had a failed showcase there. And, and it's part of that was I just wanted to accept anything because I was trying to find stage time. Part of it was hubris that I, I thought I could change the room, like that I could change the culture. Part of it was I was still learning. Like some of that, you just got to pass off to mistakes. And it's why as a performer, if I'm doing a rough room, I never, you can't be too hard on the producer. One, they respect you enough to invite you out. Yeah. And then they're paying you. Hopefully they're paying you. Uh, my One of my favorite bad show stories of all time. I was in a town in the, like the North, right on the Illinois, Wisconsin border. And they come in and we're comics. We're all getting ready. And it's clear like the bar had not done a lot of promotion. They may not have remembered there was supposed to be comedy that night. And so they're just regulars and they're watching the Bulls play. Um, there was Bulls playoff on the TV. And I turned to the producer and I'm like, hey, are we gonna, we're going to turn those TVs off. We're going to have those off when we do the show. And he's, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. Let me get to work. Right. They talk to the manager and he comes back and he says, all right, here's the story. <laughs> they won't turn the TVs off but they will turn the sound down. And I'm like, oh, okay. Now I know to manage expectations. Yeah. <laughs> and again, at that point, I could have been diva-ish. Like anyone on that show could have been like, ah, to hell with this and screw this room and blah, blah, blah. No, you just learn like, all right, we're going to make the best of it tonight. And right. we'll, we hope we do it back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've done rooms like that. So yeah. I, I, we I all have done rooms like that, Scott. <laughs> So everything that you learned from the failed shows and the one you did in the theater, I think is, is really interesting too, because theaters in, them, in and of themselves are a tough animal unless it's full and you oh, were absolutely. doing them with not a whole lot of folks showing up. What have you done any other theater type venues like that since then? I have done... <laughs> What was funny is that I went from one failed comedy show at a rock club to another failed comedy show in the basement of a rock club. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. In my head, I was just like, oh, it's these rock clubs. Yeah. But the one thing I will to any people listening right now, I just want to say 
what people don't understand, what rock club producers don't understand. So rock club producers, if you're listening, when a rock club books a local band, local bands have impressive followings. Yeah. They have 30, 35, 40 people who will come out and buy beer and whatever. Local comedians do not have that. So if you're trying to create like a door deal and you're just bringing in five people that no one's ever heard of, you're not bringing in people. Yeah, so the the first room I was in is a place called the Clearwater Theater. They they could it easily the room could stand 200. Uh-huh. We put in tables seat 60. I think our best night we had 30. Uh-huh. And then the second night we had 11. Uh, <laughs> and we were hardly anywhere ever close to our second best night. Yeah. And it was and I will say to that venue's credit, they were just like, "Hey, we're just going to keep trying, just keep going out there." I did a weekly show there for 7 8 months before yeah. then they were just like, "Look, we, this is not working. We're we don't want to keep doing this. You seem like you're getting ready to be done." And yeah, it's it's a room that like in your head you're like, "Oh, this is beautiful." And when I had performed Santa, I'd opened for Ralphie May there before and I'd opened for Judy Tenuta there. Mm-hmm. And when it's a full house, you're like, "Oh, this is the greatest thing ever." But then you have to remember, "Oh, it's not going to be a full house. None of the comedians I'm bringing out are Ralphie May. Yeah. Like no one's going to come out." Yeah. Especially cuz the venue didn't care to promote. Uh-huh. They were just like all right, well, let this guy do his thing. Why the show I run now is successful is because the venue gives a damn. They are are as interested in seeing us succeed as we are. So we're both working equally hard to reach out and get people in. And because of that, it is the best relationship I've ever had with a venue. And that's no surprise that it's why it's the most successful show I've ever done. So what is it about the folks that run that venue that make them invested in you? So I, for starters, there was a history there. This place, before it got bought by the Two Brothers Brewery, had been, it was still a place, it was called Walter Payton's Roundhouse, and they had run a club called Comedy. And uh-huh. it's where I got started. Uh, it's where I learned everything I could learn from a great guy who taught me a lot about producing named Bert Borth. And he was a guy who, back way before I had 20 minutes, was putting me up to do 20 in front of crowds who barely tolerated me. <laughs> And that, like, I would get done and they would, would love the headliner and I'd get a check and feel miserable. And I'm like, I guess this is comedy, but it also forced me to get better. And so, I, but I had known all of those people. So when they went through ownership change and the brewery came in, they were looking to do comedy again. And the, the music booker had remained the same. And so he approached me and he liked my act mm-hmm. and he just trusted me. And so... I just said, look, we'll never be able to bring in the huge names that are going to fill this up. But if we can keep getting people in and they can keep seeing that we're running a good show, eventually they're going to trust the name of the show. What's going to be what draws them in. And to our point, like our show has this insane repeat turnover. We have something like 60, 65% repeat audience a show, Uh which is amazing for us. It's amazing for a bar show. And so that they gave me their back room where bands play, but the stage is much lower. And that I think right away, they just knew that I came in with confidence uh, that I wouldn't get combative with management, but that I would say, hey, I've been doing this for a long time. 
I know what I'm doing. And then after a first, and then there were a few times when they were like, let's try putting the tables this way. And then that would fail horribly. And I said, that is why we do this. <laughs> and it's about a venue. There has to be patience on both sides. Yeah. Similarly, when I have approached them with a high budget idea and they've been able to sit me down and give me the patience and respect to say, look, the money you're asking for, we don't think we're going to be able to recoup on the back end. That's a fair trade-off. What I like about this venue is right away, they said, we do not want to charge a cover. So we will pay you a specific amount. You pay comedians because we want to just give our audience a good show. Yeah. And can you do that? And we negotiated a number and I like, I checked around. And again, as I've said, Chicago is this amazing hotbed of talent of people like just getting ready to break big and have, and have a really good career before they go East or West. And so we just agreed with that. When I asked them, when I said, Hey, we need posters. Great. They have an in-house poster machine. They can make me what I need. But then they also trust me that when I say, Hey, I need 50 posters. And then they give me 50 posters that they see them hung up yeah, <laughs> or that they see me, they see me being very aggressive on social media. Huh. They see me not just promoting the show, but promoting the club, like making sure that when I come in, I'm asking the venue, what announcements do you need me to make? What specials are we doing? What else can we be doing? And I, when they have this enormous Oktoberfest, it's one of the biggest celebrations in the state of Illinois. They know I can be their MC for a day because yeah. I'm really good with crowd. And so we just, we've worked, we've created this good relationship. It was there from the beginning and it's only gotten better. And part of that is us celebrating each other in successes. Nothing is better when a venue comes and says, hey, everyone who left said that was an amazing show. We had really good bar sales. You guys really crushed it. And that's great. But also that venue has to come to me and been like, hey, you guys have had a couple of weeks where the numbers haven't been high or hey, we had an audience member complain. We need to make sure we adjust that uh -huh. instead of just like, instead of like any relationship, like I'm a person who is remarried. So I know when you let something just fester and don't address it and don't bring it up when there's no open communication, things will explode. Right. A hundred percent of the time. Uh -huh. And you and are the other thing. Go ahead. I was going to, the other thing really quickly, and I have to stress this is every other show I mostly ran by myself. This show I run with a team and we've expanded. We're now at eight people. They're amazing comedians, all people who I trust to, to host, who I trust to do a 20-minute feature set because that's the how our show runs. We do, instead of host, feature, headliner, we have three comics each doing 20, which is a great thing we can give comics is the ability to like work on their feature set. But in bringing in these people, specifically as my life got busier, as I got remarried and then had a child and things like that. And some of our producers are also married with children or have a, amazing comedy careers that we're all able to get together and help each other out. Mm -hmm. And what I, it, what it took me almost 10 years to learn is that other voices make a show better. Diversity and thought will always lead to a better product. Right. For sure. Your, I, your show reminds me of Alex Price's show in <laughs> Indianapolis as far as the quality. The Alex Price does the Sunday show at I Black know Alex Circle. Well. Yeah, and yeah. so I haven't been to either one of them, but I see the people that you get in for the shows and like mm -hmm. you you just had Rena Calm not too long ago and you get one of our favorite humans alive. Her record comes out today. Yeah. Buy her record. Yeah. 
I pre-ordered, so I'm already. You have to have a certain amount of respect with the comedians. They ha- they have to have a certain amount of respect for you that when they come through, they are, they want to be on your show. They want to be on a Thursday oh, show or a Sunday show because they know it's going to be well-produced. They know there's going to be people there and they're going to be heard by a new audience. That That's the only two shows I've noticed in what I would call smaller markets or suburbs or whatever that really look like they just always have steam behind them. Oh, that's very sweet. And thank you so much. And it is about one getting in the bit Rena calm, Adam Burke from We Don't Care, getting those people, Sean Flannery, whose book just came out, getting the people who are established, who audiences love and taking chances on newer comp. Like the amount of times a comedian has come and, crushed a small guest set and then crushed a little bit of a longer set and then it's finally worked their way up to the 20 and then it's come up to me or one of the other producers and said like when i started comedy doing this show was a goal like it was on Mm. the vision board that makes me feel so good it makes me feel happy because i'm in a position my comedy career and i will say this i'm probably not a great person to talk to about how to get successful at stand-up, I am very happy where I am. And yeah. part of that is just because I have this wife, I have a baby, I have a son. Like, I want to stay in the suburbs. Yeah. I want to just... And when I realized that, then it became, how do I build a place I want to see? Yeah. I remember one time there was a comedian who told me that, like, my show is the equivalent of the cool kids table. <laughs> and I was talking about that with my wife. And my wife said, like, you don't want to have a cool kids table. You want to build a bigger cafeteria. And I'm like, uh-huh. I'm not entirely sure. I know what that means, but I love how it sounds. So <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. If there were, there are places that I'd love to see, have more mics, have more show. Mm-hmm. Rockford, Illinois is a wonderful city where I've always had great audiences and they've got like, two guys working hard to do shows. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a city. It's got over 120,000 people. They could do three good mics a week and a couple great shows and like you build that up and then you've got someone trying to run a small club and yeah. like wonderful things can happen from there yeah and i'm in huntsville now and i see that same potential here there's a lot of mics and you could yeah you can do an open mic i think sunday through thursday here and that's awesome and we've got a stand-up live that brings in the headliners but we've got a couple of small places that do regular things and I see some big potential there. I just don't see the audiences yet. It's not eight people, but it's 12 to 20 on a good night on some of them. can see potential for growth. And weeknight shows are so hard. Getting anything from nothing to start. That first step is always the hardest step. But, and it goes back to what I said about running when you produce a show, producing the show you want to produce is that there are some comedians who just want to produce a show where, Hey, it's me and these five guys and we're each doing 10 minutes. And those shows often get like spit on because maybe they're not the best opportunity. Maybe they're not giving the time, but I remember doing those shows when I got started. That's how I got better Yeah, is for whatever kind of garbage show you could talk about. Okay, great. But if as a performer, you have to realize I can still get something from this time. Yeah. At the very least, maybe it's the first place giving me 20 minutes. Maybe it's the first place giving me, the first place I ever headlined was a room where I was not ready to headline. Uh And it was in a sports bar. 
And I was the, we were the only time they did comedy there because I was that bad. <laughs> I Fortunately, I've gotten much better since then. Also, audience members just don't like when you yell at them for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's something I had to learn. Yeah. Because I came in there, they were like, we don't want you here. And I was like, okay, but I guess I don't want to be here. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but those rooms have value. At the very least, that place allowed me to stand up, take fire, take shelves for 45 minutes. Uh-huh feel how terrible that was but understand okay this is a set and sometimes you have to deal with that yeah and i'm grateful for that opportunity that producer who runs that show i just worked a show at his last week still a, a close friend of mine uh-huh. you just you gotta be willing to take those chances i get the feeling huntsville will probably start a series of like small bad shows and then one show which is like the cream of the crap where everyone in those small bad shows really wants to do yeah and then they get really angry because a lot of people can't um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's every room. It doesn't matter if you're in Chicago, Illinois, or the smallest town in, in or like Nome, Alaska, uh-huh. where, uh, where, or wherever you go, there's gonna be like two shows that let up everyone, uh-huh. and every one of those shows are angry that they can't work the third show. Yeah, and they're gonna <laughs> say it's because of all kinds of excuses, and it's that's just not their like, fault. You're just yeah. not. What, yeah, it's not because not they're the not ready. Wants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, but also you, they might be ready. They might be a very good comic, but when the producer sees them, they're just like, all right, that's not what I want in my room. Yeah. I respect that as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. And when you're putting together three or four comics for a 20 minute set, like you are, you don't want, you don't want three totally different types of comics. You don't, you, you, I, I, you want differences, but you don't want and you don't want three of the complete same. You don't want three people that are yeah, just all political. You, me, and another bald guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. You want an audience, and Aurora is a very diverse town. Mm. You want an you want to put up a show where at least everyone in the audience can look can listen to one joke or look at one comedian and say like, "That's who I understand. That's who I can relate." And that's not to say that like every woman relates to a female comic or every Hispanic relates to a Hispanic comic. If you're not giving people the chance to hear different voices and see different things, you're doing a disservice to that show. Yeah. Even if you may think, hey, the five funniest people I know are all white dudes with beards. Well, good for you and live your life. And that could be very true. Yeah. But think about what that looks like for an audience member that you're give your give other people chances to succeed and yeah. you'll always be you'll always get something out of it yeah and giving those folks the chance early on gives them the confidence to get better or they see let's talk about self-awareness a little bit because that's a common theme all self-awareness all the way to being delusional from some of the shows that you've produced and you've been doing this long enough that you get to see a lot of young comedians. Do you see any shift in the attitudes that come along with some of these newer? And when I say young comedian, a new comedian, the age doesn't really matter as as much yeah, as. Just, I, I don't know that there has been a shift, but they're always just come in different waves of when people get started. Adrenaline is fueling every set you do. Yeah. So. That will always lead to delusion. But when you're up there and you've, you're working this six minutes, one of the reasons an audience loves it is because you're giving them that six minutes like you've never done it before. Because guess what? You've never done it before. Yeah. <laughs> so they, like, 
you energy begets energy. Mm-hmm. Like at the very least, audiences see, oh, this guy's working hard. I love this. Yeah. Let's get into it. <laughs> so when you think I've crushed the six, so that means I'm going to crush 10. And then I've crushed, like the amount of comedians who I've seen who I'm like, oh, that guy's got a pretty good 10 minutes. And they're like, I can do 45 minutes. And I'm like, there's not a chance. <laughs> and that just comes, that comes from a level of delusion that every comedian's had that I've had. And I want to say, Right off the bat, me too. Uh-huh. I've had it too. <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like I am better because I understand. I want to share, if I had, can, one of the stories that I wrote about from Fancy yeah. Boys Club, which was when we were running that show at Clearwater, here's how long ago that was. We were booking off MySpace, and a, a guy messaged me and said, hey, I did comedy all the time in college. Like, we had an open mic. I went up all the time. I opened at shows. I was trying to get into the club. Can I come and do your room? And because I've never seen this guy before, I said, come over and do five minutes. Five minutes will be great. The guy's like, I'm going to crush five minutes, no problem. So he's going to be the first comedian up after I host. As I'm getting ready to host, I'm in the wings. This guy comes right behind me, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he said, I have to confess something. I have never stepped on stage before. I just said that because I felt if I didn't tell you that, you wouldn't put me up. But I wanted to do it. And I know I've got this five minutes in me. I know I'm funny. Definitely got it. And I, at this point, I just put my hand on his shoulder. I'm like, you're in it now. Congratulations. <laughs> you got me. I went on stage. I did my hosting time. I brought this guy up. He, he was absolutely horrible. He cut his time short by about three and a half minutes of a five-minute set. <laughs> and he was so embarrassed as I was trying to set the room for the next comic. He ran into the back bathroom. He threw up apparently very loudly everywhere, <laughs> ran out, and I never saw him. And... I always wished I could have found that guy. He like block he like mute blocked me on my space so I couldn't talk to Aww. him. But what I would have told him is now you learned. Like yeah. it's something we've all had to do. And that wasn't by far one of the five worst sets I've seen at that point. Yeah. Like it'll get better. And if you want to do it, you're gonna keep doing it. Yeah. But that's that level of self-awareness. Mm. So many people think, oh, I can do this. And that is a skill of us as performers that we make it look effortless and easy when I'm doing a headlining set, or even if I'm doing a smaller set, I hope the audience thinks, Oh, some of that is just, is just coming off the dome. He's just having fun going nuts. He's got the riff gun out. And sometimes I do. And that, Oh, if he can do that, I can do that. How hard can it be? Just talking. I talk all the time. And then you get up there and you realize, Oh no, this isn't just about, talking in a normal way that we've always done where you're just saying hey look at that fat guy and then you all laugh when he falls Uh Uh, you're creating something from scratch and as i said earlier that's the hardest thing to do that first step is near impossible and it's why for every hundred comedians who do an open mic you get two a year later who are still doing it yeah that's definitely true i one of the things and I guess I'm always looking for the ones that are, they're just further along than you would expect somebody for the time they've been doing it, like a year or something like that. And uh, when I see- When we have a comedian- Go go ahead. When we have a comedian kill a 10 minute set. So we have one guest set and it's a 10 minute set. When I have a comedian kill that set and I come up and I say, that is amazing. We would like to come back and have you do the 20 minute feature set. And they tell me, like, I am not ready for that. Yeah. The amount of respect I have for that comic grows 
I'm like just exponentially. Yeah. Cause I'm just like, Oh, you get it. Yeah. And it's so amazing because so often than not, it tanks the other way. Yeah. It's a guy being like, yeah, I have 20 minutes and then they have a good 12 and then it like falls apart. It's funny. I've, I think I mentioned this one of the interviews I did recently, but I've been, I was asked to be on a show down here, a showcase and I hadn't been on stage for a long time and I did okay, but not like I normally do. And I knew that I need to put some reps in before I get back on stage. So I got asked to do a couple other shows because I'm not as bad as some of the people <laughs> that are already on the show. And I, but I have my own, I have my own standards and I've turned them down because I, I said, I just, I need to kick the rust off before I commit to doing 20 minutes. I just, I, I, I can't do it. And I, I've done a few open mics down here and there's been a couple that I've really respected. Just like you, I've really respected the folks that got up there because a couple open mics here, I'll give you 10 minutes. And I see guys come up there that will do three and say, that's all I got. Instead of trying to yammer through another seven and just totally kill any of the laughs they got in the first three. And I'm like, okay, those guys are smart. Those are the ones you want. There's a amazing comedian named Peter John Burns. And the one thing he taught me is that every time you go on stage, have a purpose. And what I've learned from that is that for a while, pre COVID, our show was also doing an open mic which was a really nice way for us to like scout talent and then just to have an open mind. It's always good to, to get your props in. And the moment a comedian pulled out a notebook and said, oh, let me see what I got and start flipping through pages, uh-huh. immediately you turn off. Because yeah. you're like, oh, if you don't know why you're here, why should any of us care yeah. about yeah. what you're doing? Yeah, those comedians who are like, hey, I've got my three minutes. That's what I wanted to work on. I'm done. Thank you. Yeah, And to say what you said, there's a, tomorrow night I'll be at, a, there's a new comedy club. It opened in a little city called Batavia, which is not that far. Oh yeah. And I'm excited to get up now after I've had a chance to like work on a 15 minute set that I'm proud of, that I know is good. And I know I'm not going to be telling jokes for the first, second, third time. I've got a lot of sea legs back. And that is, that has, that's just me understanding. I didn't want to do that room until I came in and could get someone to be like, oh, that's someone I want to see back. One of the things that we discussed before before the interview was you've gotten to work with high school students for a couple years. And I, want, I wanted to see what you got out of that and what they got out of that. So as a brief backstory, my wife, my wife is a, is a high school English teacher. Uh-huh. And that school has an improv team. And they invited me in one day to talk about stand-up. And what I had expected to be like a 10-minute conversation turned into an hour and a half session that ended with like kids writing jokes and performing in front of us in this black box theater setting. And so what I've done, we had to take two years off for the reason we all know. But what we've done twice now is a full showcase featuring these kids where I work with them a dozen times beforehand. They Mm. build these five-minute sets, and it is the most rewarding thing I've done in comedy because, one, these kids want to learn. Like They're they're so anxious, and because of that, they put in the work. It is so nice when you're listening to someone work out a joke, and you say, look, I think you have a very good 
understanding of what your joke is, but you need to add a punchline here. Or yeah. even something like you need to move your punchline to the end of your sentence because that's where the audience yeah. laughs. Or you need to put yourself in the joke more. Mm. And they immediately listen and get to work. They are so supportive of each other that like they are feeding each other different different tags, different mm. punchlines. They are helping each other learn how to, then that stuff we talked about at the beginning of this interview, how to stand on stage, how to hold a microphone, how to get a crowd's control when they're talking a little. And to watch them grow, and again, part of that is because like I have my own son who was in high school. I have always liked working with people that age. I respect so much teachers and what my wife and her co-workers do that that was such a joy i will never be able to i will never be able to be like my wife and be able to teach about the great gatsby uh -huh. but i can teach a kid to write a joke and that they are and that there are people who and that those kids who probably thought oh i'll never be able to do this till i get older or oh i'll never be able to do this period yeah and to watch this year we had a couple of students go from being on stage with a very quiet whisper voice head down refusing to make eye contact, get on stage in front of, and our final showcase is a packed house because mm. these kids, like over 150 people in a room not meant to hold that. Yeah. Because everyone wants to come. Their parents want to come. Their friends want to come. And to see these people who were so shy when we got started, get on stage and just mur straight murder. Yeah. And granted, it's a kind audience, so they will do well. But because they have the jokes, just a straight murder, is such a wonderful feeling. Oh yeah. Like you walk, I walk out of there feeling like it's Christmas morning. Yeah. And then I get the chance to put up some comedians, professional comedians who I think they would like to see. One of my favorite comedians is the brilliant Mike Wiley, who's a very dry comedian, just yeah. set a punchline, set a punch. He's a one-liner guy. Yeah. High school kids love one-liners. Yeah. So Mike Wiley is the perfect guy for that. Yeah. But it's, it's also great because Mike is a comedian whose jokes I can write on a chalkboard and underline like here is the setup here is the punch one of his jokes is gboard jokes they write themselves yeah that's a great joke <laughs> you and you're able to be like underline setup underline punchline and also show this is the minimum amount of words it takes to yeah. make someone laugh and that to get that from those kids is so wonderful if i could do that with more schools and i might as things get easier as my my youngest gets a little older i may try to do that with more schools yeah. because i think it's a, it's selfish because I like feeling good. Uh -huh. But B, I like being able to reach out and give these kids something that they wouldn't be able to find. And it's one thing to be in improv or even the drama club or whatever in high school. And it's totally another thing to stand on stage by yourself and fill that five minutes. And when you learn it that young... I remember my first time, I was 52 the first time I did it. I learned things about myself at oh, wow. age 52 that I didn't know. And it, and Such I've always a been a public kind of speaker. Theory. Yeah, I've, I've always done, I've always done public speaking and sales and stuff like that anyways. And I put on webinars and did lunch and learns and all that kind of crap. But doing the comedy part where all eyes are on you and the only subject matter that you have is what's coming out of your head. That's totally a different thing. And those kids, even if they don't do comedy going forward, 
they've got a skill that can, they're always going to go back to that. Yeah. They'll be able to say that one night I crushed and like our show, God bless the audience we have in still not Friday. We had a bunch of regulars come out uh, and we'd go up to the kids afterwards. We're like, you are so great. Yeah. And the pure joy that to watch them as strangers approach them. Yeah. And I know that a couple, a couple of the kids were very fortunate that there's a comedy club that has an all ages open mic and that some of the kids have gone over to, to work their stuff on. And when they like send me clips and things, it makes me so happy. Part of that is because I know what stand up gave me as a awkward child i was unsure of myself and i what didn't feel capable or confident and i didn't grow up in a town big enough to have a right apartment. but like i also knew that like when i stepped on stage as a stand-up i'm like oh this is where i can be the best version of myself and to watch kids also feel that way is a very cool thing that you can give someone yeah yeah um for sure and they take advantage of it. So good for them. Yeah. They, I, all I can do is give them the chance. Yeah. And if there's a kid who comes up and forgets everything, they, you gotta, they die on their own sword. Yeah. But thankfully that's never happened because I would feel terrible. I would never stop. I would never stop feeling bad. Yeah. But every kid comes up and we just rehearse. We rehearse on the roundhouse stage. We rehearse at school. I make sure there's no way that they're going to get up there and be like, uh, and start like fumbling through their phone. And they bring it every time. And I love it so much. So I wanted to get into, you've been producing long enough that you've seen everything and you've seen how all kinds of comedians act and how they approach you and stuff like that. What would you say are the three worst things you can do when approaching a producer to be on a show? Okay, here we go. Number one off the bat is do not, and you wouldn't believe how often this happens. Do not try and bolster yourself up by making fun of the other comedians I've booked. I have the amount of booking requests I've had from people be like, Hey, you've booked Bob and Larry and Ed and they all suck. Like I'm funnier than them. And I'm like, then why do you want to be on my show where I want to have on people who you hate? Uh. I don't understand that go away. So that's number one. Number two is understand that I, we get a lot of clips and emails. So if mm. you send me a message or you come up to me and say, Hey, I'd love to do this show. I might not get back to you for a little bit. It's not personal, but understand that. And that's not to say never talk to me again about it. Wait a month. <laughs> or what I'll often do is I'm, if I'm performing on a show and someone says, Hey, I'd love to do the show. And I like them. Here's how comedians know I'll like them. Cause I'll say, Hey, look, I'm going to reach out to you in case I forget message me by Saturday. If you haven't heard from me. and that, that puts some onus on them as well. Yeah. Like it allows it to go both ways. So don't take lack of time personally. Don't insult the show. And then boy, number three is just don't feel like you're entitled to it. I have had comedians just show up. It's yeah. one of the stories I write about yeah. with fancy boys, a guy who showed up and I was like, Oh, how sweet. This comedian's just here to sit in the audience and support the show, which is something in suburban Chicago shows. You see a lot. Comedians just want to support. Uh -huh. So they, these are the kind of comedians who like sit through a whole open mic. And who like come to a show just to laugh at the comedians. And I had this comedian show up and he just said, okay, so how much time am I doing? And I'm like, you are not on the show. I don't know what you're thinking. 
But you could just see in his head the thought of, if I show up, he has to put me on. And that's not to say that doesn't happen. That happens all the time. You show up to a show, they're a comic short, or someone backs yeah. out, and someone's like, hey, can you do five minutes? Great. Take the opportunity. Yeah. Go up, crush. Do that five minutes. But don't expect don't expect that if you just show up, you are entitled to a stage. That stage is the producer's for the time being. It yeah. sure as heck isn't yours. Yeah. And... The funny thing is I've, I had that happen at one of my shows too, where somebody just expected. And I, fortunately, I'm a very direct person and I was able to shoot him down really quick. But it was, I, I, what I did is I went back and I looked at everything I did as far as promotion that would have given any idea that this was going to be a show that anybody could show up and do. And it, I, it wasn't. So I, I don't know. If it's a reading comprehension thing or like a self-awareness thing, like you say, or what it was. But yeah, it, it was interesting. And I didn't stay for the yeah. show. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not. That's where we're different. I feel like uh, people always told me this all the time. I'm too nice. My wife is, you're too friendly. Mm. Uh, like here, I've got a Paddington Bear shirt yeah. on. It's like, my, it's, a, it's my spirit. He's my spirit being. Yeah. So when I first started producing shows, I people would just come up and on stage people would just show up because they know I'd be like fine go up do time I feel bad that you drove all this way out what I had to learn there is like doing that doesn't help the show it doesn't help me as a producer and honestly it doesn't help them as comedians mm. and it doesn't help the other comedians who I wanted to see up that I was paying money to see yeah so that I was sabotaging myself because I was afraid of hurting someone's feelings yeah what you learn eventually in producing is sometimes feelings have to yeah to get hurt yeah I, I know we're boy we've already been going a bit can I touch on something yeah very quickly I if you are sending a clip and I know you've talked we've that's been discussed on the show uh -huh. as a producer. Let me just say, here's what the clip should be. It should be the jokes you will do if you are booked and an audience reaction that is pleasing for the producer to hear. Yeah. So if you have the best set of your life, if you have these jokes that are going to crush everywhere, but you're doing it in front of an open mic of three comedians who don't care, yeah. that's a bad clip. Similarly, if, if you do... If your entire set is clearly crowd work, if mm. all you're showing me is that you're just going to talk to the audience, I can't use that right. because it's going to be a different audience. And then it's the other things. It's, again, taking the mic stand out, putting it behind you, showing people you're a professional, starting that clip the moment you walk on stage. Because if you start the clip three minutes into your set, my question is going to be, what kind of crap happened in those first three minutes? <laughs> and... The worst clip I ever, I like to view clips on the treadmill because I like to hate myself physically and emotionally at the same time. <laughs> like that anger is, that's how I get the extra half mile an hour. One of the five worst clips I ever saw, I never saw the comedian start it because it was at an open mic. It was the previous comedian before him do a minute. Then the host gets up and does like another minute making fun of that other comedian. Uh -huh. Then before they could even bring up the comic, whose clip was the one he sent me. I was like, delete. No, I'm done. You've wasted two minutes of my time. Yeah. I'm sweaty and angry. Because that's, I feel like the treadmill is good. Because if you're sweaty and angry and someone still makes you laugh, all right, good. You've yeah. got the goods. I'll give you that. So there, there it is. Worst clip I have sent. 
And again, if anyone from the Chicago suburbs is watching this, if you want to know who that is, just message me yeah. or get me drunk at a show. <laughs> I'll say, I always say, it's bad of me, I know, but what I it's, it's how it's Yeah, true. you're saving them from some trouble, so that's cool. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I was thinking before, one of the things I've been thinking about is, in my short time, the hardest thing that I've done as a comedian and I don't know if this is the same for you, but you get to see it a lot. It's going from 10 to 15. It's, it's having a solid 10 and turning it into a solid 15. It's just much harder than getting to five. And it's twice as hard as going from five to 10, I would say. What do you see that people do that are able to do that? Going from 10 to 20 is the hardest thing. I completely agree with you. Especially because in my head, I would have a 10-minute set that crushed, and I would have a separate 10-minute set that crushed. And I thought, okay, so I have 20 good minutes. I know I have it. Why can't I just sandwich it together? Yeah. And the best comedians who do, look, I am, I'm fighting a little bit of a cold, so I apologize, is I am a very energetic comedian. high pace energy. I like getting loud. I like having fun. But if you come at an audience with your foot on the gas the whole time, audience loves that for six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 minutes. Yeah. But then they get tired of it. Yeah. So you, what I had to learn is I had to create a 20 minute set is a long time. Why you have to create you have to create dynamics. You have to go from one place to another. You can't just keep an audience in one spot for 20 minutes. Yeah. Like they get bored, they get yeah. tired. If they're seeing the same thing over and over, eventually they're going to learn, oh, here's where the punchline is. It's going to be this. So for me, it came from moving my energy around. If my first couple of minutes are big energy and I'm going high, I'm going hard. Now I'm slowing down for four or five minutes, doing a couple smaller things. Now I'm messing with how I deliver punchlines. Now I'm replacing very short jokes with kind of longer stories. Mm -hmm. And you're taking that focus. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a Nirvana song. You go loud, quiet, loud. Yeah. And you're allowing the audience to you're taking them by surprise and you're taking them on a journey. The My favorite comedian in the past 10 years has been Kyle Kinane, mm -hmm. another Chicago guy. And he is a brilliant storyteller, a master storyteller. But if you watch every one of his specials, first joke is always set a punchline real quick. Yeah. That first punchline comes out in 12 seconds. Yeah. And then between his longer bits, he's got those little things that he just throws in there. Like mm -hmm. he knows that every time you're, you can't just give an, you can't give an audience an all steak dinner. Yeah. You got to mix it up. You got to throw in some vegetables. You got to throw in seafood. You got to give them some beverage. Yeah. You got to go everywhere. And yeah. when you do, that's when you get a well-sustained engaged mm -hmm. crowd. And I've noticed, and I went back and looked at my first good 10 minutes and my second good 10 minutes and they're it's a different voice in each one. So one of them I'm talking about personal stories and my relationship with my wife and stuff like that. And the other is observational on boomers mostly. And so yeah. the, the only way to do that 
is to somehow meld everything together and have those little setup punches in between it so there's a transition but it's hard and every comedian that's doing yeah. that when they write their first 10 minutes they are definitely a different comedian than when, than when they write the second so they've learned oh, and and their voice is different so yeah it's really th that was really the hardest thing i did and i know that i know that i still don't have my best 20 minutes i would be if you were to say hey scott i'd like for you to come on and do 20 minutes i said no i got 10 at best and i would be that guy yeah. and i guess i just it's i think what you say is very valid in the it's it's a lot more going back to the drawing board and figuring out how oh, yeah. these jokes work and how to make them work together more than be two separate beings when i hear someone tell me that they have never bombed i one believe that they're a stone cold liar yeah and two i feel terrible for them yeah because like why failure is important and again we'll talk about whether it's a comedian or a producer or whether i'm writing for fancy boys if your brain gets the same reaction every time it just smooths out. It just becomes like glass, man. Yeah. You need like all those grooves just digging deeper and deeper. You need to learn, like when something doesn't go wrong, you need to learn how to find a new way. Yeah. Because if your only thought is, and we've, I'm, we've seen hundreds of comics do this, have a bad set. And instead of just being like, oh, crowd sucked. Maybe, but also what could you have done differently? Yeah. How can you change things up? Because the more pitches you have in your arsenal, the better performer you're going to be. The more you learn that, okay, I've done this 10-minute set. I've done two great 10-minute sets. That doesn't mean you have 20. Yeah. I'm so glad. I've never, I feel like I've been the only one saying that. The fact that you've said that has made me <laughs> so happy. <laughs> Because I feel like I found my other guy. Yeah, um, and I think it. Yeah, I think it's true for a lot of people, but they you just don't see it unless you allow yourself to step back and look at it. Yeah, and uh, uh, to go back to something we said, to be self-aware. And I was always lucky. I because I learned that from those rooms where I was talking about bombing and then getting the check. I'd have ten minutes where I'm like, all right, now the audience is on board. Here mm -hmm. we go. Now we're working. And I'd have that big closer that was ready. Yeah. But before that big closer, they had five minutes to check out. Yeah. So by the time I was giving them that, they were like, oh, all right, I guess so. Yeah. Like, Yay. I've <laughs> been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. And I could have been watching. And again, to go to my fault, I could have been watching better comics. I could have been watching the headliner yeah. to watch how he maneuvered his way around it instead of taking that like first five minutes to feel that sting and get bad. Yeah. I could have done a better. And it's something I've tried to do more and more. Yeah. It's the one thing I always say is when people are like, you can't take advice from me. that guy's so new. They've only done two open mics. Sure. But what if they've said something like, what if they tell you something just because someone is new doesn't mean they don't have good advice. By the way, it also, just because someone has bad advice doesn't mean you have to take it. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with being polite and just being like, oh, hey, that's a good thought. I'll think about that. Thank you. The more feedback, again, the more feedback you take, the more diverse thoughts of opinions you have going in your head, better performer you're going to be, yeah. better producer you're going to be, arguably better human you're going to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's funny. I see a lot of new ones, like brand new ones, and they have been studying for a long time. And has Matt Cook ever done your show? 
you know, yeah, yeah, I know, man. Yeah, and he started very young, but he had studied. His parents pretty much made him study all of the Moms Mabley and all that stuff before he even went on stage, and he knew a lot of stuff before he even did his first set. And I see it. I see that in a lot of open mics. I have conversations with kids after the show, and they're like, "Yeah, I I watched all of Carlin's specials. I watched all of Pryor's specials. I, I've been really watching." what's going on in comedy and you appreciate that and it's a lot harder to put it in practice but at least they've put the work in to understand what a bit looks like it's the joy of the internet like these kids have the ability because i like when i got started i i i and i obviously had this love of cosby and steve martin and then prior and carlin things of that but i was going to the library to get those records anyone can pull up anything that they have and so that it allows a young person and it's the one thing that like we i remember going back to working with these high school kids yeah they absolutely love people like bo burnham and john mulaney and things like that but then you can also lead them into stephen wright or people like that people mm-hmm. who they can find this new appreciation mitch hedberg things like that yeah. people who they can find this wonderful appreciation and nuance for yeah yeah i tell you i, I want to make sure we mention the fancy boys club because uh, and first of all it's not just boys there's there they, they, no. they have plenty of of female writers as well but it's got the everything this is on fancy yeah Yes, the yeah. epi- we're it's not we're not a fancy boys club. We're a fancy boys yeah, club. Yeah, um, yeah. We write about sports and politics and comedy. We write very personal stuff. We write very broad things. Yeah. It's I was able to start it with two very amazing writers, the wonderful Brandon Andreessen and Jack Baker, and we had just written for other places together, and we were just like, oh, we just love each other's writing. So yeah. the opportunity came where the three of us could all just be like, let's just do this together. We have a couple small podcasts. We should be doing that more. But yeah, fancyboysclub.com. Unfortunately, the last article is a Roe versus Wade article by me. I assure you there are funnier articles on the site. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. something for everybody there. And uh, yeah, I, I've had yeah. it bookmarked. And I've been, uh, I don't know when we became Facebook friends, but I've been watching the things that you do ever since then. And I just, I really respect, first of all, that you're able to do a Thursday show that is that's a profitable show for seven years. I think that's great. But I just I just love the fact that you are first of all a student of comedy and that somebody that comedians all over the country they know you and if they're in town they want to be on your show. So it, it, between you and Alex, I really respect the, the fact that you guys are doing that and you just have this love for comedy and giving the people the stage time that they need and they want on days that they normally wouldn't. So I think that's really cool. You're lucky. If we were in person, you'd be getting a very gross hug right okay. now. Uh, that makes me, oh, that's so sweet of you. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love the podcast. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's wonderful to do. To hear that makes me... And absolutely energizes the batteries and keeps me going. And so thank you so much. That's so sweet of you. Yeah, It's funny, these relationships that you make that you've never met the person, it's sometimes you have to tell them that they that they inspired you or they touched you or something like that. And that's one of the things during the pandemic that I really made a habit of that I'd shoot them a message. Hey, that thing that you wrote, 
it, it really resonated with me. Thank you. And and I check in on people that I don't even know just because I, I know that they're going through a rough time. And I just think it's important. And I'm just glad we finally got to talk. We're cut from the same cloth. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. There's nothing wrong, hopefully, as we evolve as a culture and as men. I, again, my dog is very excited about yeah. this. You're fired. Uh, my dog is very excited about this. As we evolve, you learn that telling someone that, like, they have a positive impact on you. It's good for everyone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You feel better. They feel better. Yeah. Take a chance. It's that's one of the reasons why I, I've produced shows is to take these very funny people and to show them how much I appreciate them. So that's uh -huh. so wonderful. That's so wonderful for you to say, and that means so much. To me. Yeah. That's Truly, great. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm glad we finally got to talk, and I appreciate what me you too. do. Everybody, check out the Fancy Boys Club. And when you're in Aurora, it's the not. It's still not Friday. Still, still not uh, Friday show. We, yeah. Yeah. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at S. NF comedy. That's all one word. SNF comedy at two brothers roundhouse every Thursday at eight. It is a, a free show and you can take my dog if you Great. want, because uh, he may not be around here much longer. <laughs> That's totally fine. And uh, I'll will be in the show notes as well. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Mm.